Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TR90 Body Burn 30 support call. This call happens Monday through Friday at this time, which for me is 6.40 in the morning, Pacific time, 7.40 Mountain time, 8.40 if you're in Texas, and 9.40 if you're Michigan and East Coast time. If you're listening to us live and you're here at the right time, and we're glad that you joined us this morning. If you ever miss these calls, then go back and pick them up on Sound, S-O-U-N-D, Cloud, C-L-O-U-D. Put in TR90. After you put in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90, these calls will pop up. They're archived back nine plus years. In the last several months, if you're looking for a specific call, you can always because um, they're organized by date, they're, they also have the host name, and they have had since the very beginning. But recently, in the last year, we've been adding um, topics for each of the dates and the hosts, just so that you have an idea of, oh, if I missed part one of something or I missed part two, I can always go back and pick that up. Or if you're wanting to listen to any of the wonderful meditations that Victoria has done on Fridays, then those are also input by topic as well as title. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon. I come to you with an education background. I came into the TR90 program when it first um, was introduced. I had been on the R90 program, which was the immediate predecessor, and that one was not working for me. And when they added the supplements, and a little more structure to the TR90 program that I was able to drop 20 body inches. I didn't lose an ounce, but I dropped 20 body inches and several dress sizes. And I just absolutely love this program. And that program being that you've got that one really good lean meal a day, two shakes a day, three snacks a day when you're first starting out, drinking plenty of water to stay hydrated. Current thinking on that is at least one ounce of water for every two pounds that you weigh. So if you weigh 100 pounds, the minimum amount of water you should be drinking is 50 ounces. Um, The water does several things. It clears out toxins. It uh, keeps your body hydrated. It helps you keep looking younger. It, It does a multitude of things. If you think you're hungry, most likely it's dehydration starting to sit in. So I, if I think I'm hungry, the first thing I always reach for is an 8-ounce glass of water, drink that, wait five minutes, and see if I'm really, truly hungry, and then um, take a look at what I had next planned for my meal schedule. So you should get be getting seven plus servings of fruits and vegetables. The fruits and vegetables, and the closer to the source, the better. The fruits and vegetables are actually um, key for a lot of macronutrients, a lot of micronutrients, and fiber. The fiber actually does a lot of things to keep your whole system moving and staying healthy, and it's preventative on a number of levels. Getting seven to nine hours of rest daily is also another really good key component to have because that rest helps you 
actually do some resets while you're sleeping, but it, adequate rest actually makes sure that you're making good decisions the following day or the next several days, depending on if you're starting to get sleep deprived or not. And at some point, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pick up some information on why that sleep is really important again and show that again. The uh, exercise, 30 minutes of moderate to heavy exercise at least five days a week. Um, remember, this is a lifestyle change. You want to make these things permanent because you're going to have continued success if you do. And that exercise is... I try to mix it up between the aerobic and the weight-bearing just because I want a good mix, but it, it is a really good key component, component to this program. Taking your supplements 15 to 20 minutes before a meal is also very optimum. If you're not able to take it 15 to 20 minutes before a meal, taking it with your meal is better than not taking it at all or forgetting it. Um, they, they really do work. And I found, because of the way my life is as a substitute teacher, I was not able to gauge that 15 to 20 minutes. So many times I was taking that, uh, those supplements right either immediately before my meal or with my meal just so that I was getting them in and staying on track. And if you hear a kitty cat whining in the background, it's just because she's looking for attention and I'm trying to keep her occupied. So with that being said, I'm always looking for things that will help supplement our Tier 90 lifestyle. And today I'm sharing some information out of the book that it's called Fat Chance Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. It's written by Robert H. Lustig, and Lustig is L-U-S-T-I-G. He's an MD and an MS. And I started yesterday with some information on what the government has done in regards to fructose and uh, especially high fructose. And today we're starting in about the sugar tariffs and the crony capitalism. Sugar tariffs are the longest running U.S. policy of all, dating back to 1789, when the first Congress imposed a tariff upon the foreign sugar to raise revenue for the fledgling government. Since then, the sugar tariffs have expanded to increase competition with other subsidized countries to provide protection for U.S. jobs and to make money for sugar czars to funnel back to, to politicians. Sugar is produced in 18 states and supports 146,000 U.S. jobs and contributes $10 billion, with a billion, dollars to the economy each year. Due to the sugar tariffs, U.S. sugar prices currently are at or near record highs. Consumers on the world market pay about $0.34 cents per pound for refined sugar, which is 20 cents less than the Americans pay. While sugar tariffs generated $2.5 billion in 2009, America's artificial price 
crop adds another $1.4 billion to the shopping bills of U.S. consumers each year. All of this has made a lot of people very wealthy, and if the sugar tariffs actually reduce sugar consumption, he would, uh, Dr. Lustig would be a proponent, but they don't. Despite the tariffs, the U.S. consumes more sugar per capita than any other country. One reason is our addiction to sugar. The other is that the food industry has a very cheap alternative to sucrose in the form of high fructose corn syrup. The executive branch has a vested interest in maintaining our current food structure and supply. To them, it's all about money and jobs. U.S. consumers spend approximately $1 trillion annually on food, which accounts for nearly 10% of the gross domestic product, or the GDP. 6% of our exports revolve around food, accounting for another $56 billion. More than 16.5 million Americans are employed in the food industry, and this number is not expected to decline over the next decade. The government will go to great lengths to keep us consuming at the same, if not increased, rates. And nearly all of our consumption includes some sort of sugar. Yet the executive branch also doles out $147 billion annually in health care, most of it for chronic disease. It is a no-win situation, and so the government tries to play both sides. In 2002, the World Health Organization and the FAO convened a policy forum to address the roles of nutrition in disease. They produced technical reports series 916 entitled Diet, Nutrition, and the Prevention of Chronic Diseases. This document had created a firestorm of controversy. Even a decade prior, no fewer than 23 countries had identified sugar as a major contributor to chronic disease. The TRS 916 called for limiting added sugar to less than 10% of the total calories in the diet. Clearly, this cannot stand. Dr. Riaz Khan, the director of the World Health Research Organization, or the World Sugar Research Organization, countered the concept of good food and bad food lacks scientific credibility. Energy food can make a valuable contribution to diet and diet variety. It is getting the balance right that is the key. The time for the big men's? The American food manufacturers groups began frantic lobbying in Washington. The Sugar Association threatened to exercise every avenue available to expose the dubious nature of this particular report. Its lobbying resulted in a scathing 2004 letter to the World Health Organization from William Steiger, special agent to the Department of Health and Human Services and godson to George Herbert Walker Bush, rejecting years of research and denying any evidence of a link between the junk food and obesity. Steiger's letter questioned the scientific basis 
of linking for the linking of fruit and vegetable consumption to decrease risk of obesity and and diabetes. He added there is an unsubstantiated focus on good and bad foods and a conclusion that specific foods are linked to non-communicable diseases and obesity. The assertion that heavy marketing of energy-dense foods or fast food outlets increases the risk of obesity is supported by almost no data. So this is in direct opposition to what 23 countries have actually um, discovered and with a lot of science that backs it up. And we have proponents and lobbyists saying not. Next, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tommy Thompson, threatened to withhold $406 million of annual U.S. contribution to the World Health Organization unless the TRS-916 was repealed. Suffice it to say, TRS-916 was deep six. There is still no DRI for sugar or and no sugar limit, and the world just gets keeps getting fatter and sicker. The disparities in metabolic syndrome between the rich and the poor continue to vex government at the federal and local levels because they are the ones who ultimately have to pay for it. Michael, uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg of New York City had been a public health pioneer out front on this issue from the onset, and in 2011, he petitioned the SNAP program sponsored by the USDA to conduct a pilot project in New York City to remove sugared beverages from its portfolio. He argued that SNAP would save $4 billion a year and that the government would save countless sums on Medicaid and Medicare. Unfortunately, the USDA declined Bloomberg's petition saying that there was no outcome measures no determination of what defined a sugared beverage, and no preparation on the part of the vendors. The USDA was also concerned that SNAP recipients would be stigmatized. Stigmatized if you're poor and using food stamps, you're already stigmatized. If you're obese, you're already stigmatized. How much more stigmatization could the USDA argue? The goal of the SNAP program is to provide improved levels of nutrition among low-income households. And in fact, the American Beverage Association had lobbied the USDA accusing New York City of unfair discrimination to prevent food stamps from being used to purchase sugary beverages. More than 30 million uh, so the next one is actually National Food Lunch Program, or the NFLP. More than 30 million children eat their lunch at school due to the National School Lunch Program. An entitlement of the Farm Bill. Children who use this program have an increased prevalence of obesity even after race and poverty are factored in. The School Meals Initiative in 1995 provides the school lunches must contain no more than 30% of the calories from fat and 25% of the daily allowance of 
protein, calcium, iron, vitamin A, vitamin C, and age-appropriate calories. Not one word about sugar, or vitamin D for that matter. And there, and there is the rub. In 2010, schools were required to limit the levels of saturated fat, sodium, calories, trans fats in meals. Still not one word about sugar. And while whole grains are required, they are not defined. Everyone is a dietitian and even politicians. And in 1983, President Reagan determined that ketchup was a vegetable. More recently, in response to the restrictive guidelines placed on school lunches, lobbyists representing pizza manufacturers and cheese producers went to work. They obtained congressional concessions that one-eighth of a cup of tomato paste would have the nutritional equivalent of one-eighth of a cup of vegetables. In November 2011, Congress unapologetically got into the nutrition business, declaring pizza was now a vegetable. Who knew? And I think I'm going to stop there for today. I'm going to take this off mute. This is Susan Mann for February 15th, 2022, signing out. And I'm going to listen for any questions or comments. If at the top of the hour you want to um, move over to Facebook, One Team Global Live, you can listen to one of our leaders explaining how to build that new skin business. So there we have it. Why everybody keeps saying that sugar is not the problem when it really is the problem and why we really need to limit that sugar because it is critical to our health. And why the lobbyists keep telling us no. So if there's no questions or comments, I am going to move on. I wish you all a great day, and I hope that you have wonderful weather and a chance to get outside oh. and enjoy decent weather today. <laughs> I, I have a question. I have a question. Sure. The, bush is, the bush and the sugar, what was that one? What did you say? I had myself on oh, that- mute. <laughs> okay, I'll go back to... Uh, so if you, um, it said George... Oh, I should be able to find it fairly easily because it was oh. not too far. Back. It was not too far back in what I was reading. Okay, and sorry. No, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Um, okay, so that part was. Um, its lobbyists resulted in a scathing report in 2004, a letter to. Um, the World Health Organization from William Seiger, special assistant to the Department of Health and Human Services, who also happened to be the godson of George H.W. Bush, rejecting years of research and denying the evidence of the link between junk food and obesity. And then he went on to say that um, there, there was no way that we could link the fruit and vegetable consumption to decrease risk of obesity and diabetes, and that everything was unsubstantiated. So he actually said the reverse of what the report was actually, the report says, yes, fruits and vegetables are good, limiting sugar is imperative, and he says, nope, can't prove it, 
and that's kind of where that is at. Okay. So does that help? <laughs> or did I money yeah, it worse? <laughs> well, you know, I just it was just curious. Um yep. that they denied it, you know. Well, and you know, the lobbyists probably got in there and they're going, you know, we've got to support the sugar we've got to support the corn growers, we've got to support the sugar beet growers, the you know it's the lobbyists they have a lot to say about what we eat. So there it is. Okay. Well and and it behooves us to stay on top of it and find out the actual science behind everything to really understand why we're eating what we should be eating. So it's been this book has been I can say very fascinating from start to finish. So Yes, very interesting. And with that, I am going to move on with my day because I have a dog here that's going to want to go out for a walk. Have a a great day. I will, you too. And we'll have Frank up tomorrow, and I'll be back on Thursday. We'll have Victoria up on Friday. So we've got a fun week planned for everybody. Take care, one and all. All righty. Bye.